0: In 2011, Korean-American journalist Suki Kim went to North Korea to teach English to the children of the country's elite for six months. But she was in fact an undercover journalist documenting everyday life under the regime of Kim Jong-il, which she turned into a book, Without You, There Is No Us, which makes Suki Kim wonder, Why, 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 why is this not a movie? Hello and welcome to Why Is This Not a Movie, the podcast where we look at a moment in history or a book or a story we can rip from the headlines and ask Hollywood why no one's ever put it onto the big screen. I'm Mike Vago, and with me is Suki Kim, the only investigative journalist to have ever gone undercover in North Korea, a contributing editor at the New Republic and author of two books. One, The Interpreter is a novel about a Korean American interpreter in New York who investigates her parents' murder. The other, Without You, There Is No Us, is a nonfiction account of her six months living under Kim Jong-il's regime. Suki, thanks so much for coming on the show. Tell us about your book and your experiences in North Korea and why they need to be made into a movie.
1: Thank you for having me on your show. So the book is an account of living inside North Korea. It's a topic, a place that I followed for a decade. I started going to North Korea from uh, 2002, and I went in repeatedly under different guises. And uh, finally, in 2011, which is really the year 100 for North Korea, they count The years, they have a calendar system differently from the rest of the world. So their year one really begins with the birth of their original great leader, uh, Kim Il-sung. And um, now we are on great leader three with Kim Jong-un. There have been three men. That year, 2011, great leader two, the second, Kim Jong-il was still in power. So that year was uh, year 100, celebrating that year 100. They had shut down every university in the whole country for a year and put all those young men into construction fields uh, and women. And they plucked 270 young men from their best universities, creme de la creme, and put those men into a brand new university that was being set up in the suburb of Pyongyang staffed entirely uh, with foreigners. And it's that university I ended up in living with and teaching the selected creme de la creme young men who are age 20. So for those six months in 2011, I ended up living with the future leadership of North Korea. And the book is really an account of me learning what this world was, because we've never learned what it's like to be inside. We have accounts from defectors, but we don't know what life is like in North Korea, especially for those elite. And that's who I ended up basically eating with every day, playing sports with every day, and ultimately fell in love with them all. While this was going on, also, um, the great leader was dying. That is the final six months of Kim Jong-il's life the last great leader and Kim Jong-un was rising to power. By the end of my stay, my literally the last day, the great leader himself died in December 2011 and we'll see the rise of the new great leader. So this is really the account of the final six months of the great leader's life with the 270 young men who are going to inherit the nation and me as an undercover journalist Oh, there's whole other angle, which is that I might cover was as an evangelical Christian. The university was set up by evangelicals from around the world who were Westerners. So I was pretending to be an evangelical Christian in order to be in there. Also pretending to be a teacher because I'm not a teacher.
0: Actually, one of my questions, I, I read sections of the book and I've read some of your interviews online and I've never, uh, I didn't find the answer to this. How did you get that job? And did they put together that you had been there as a journalist before?
1: It took years of pursuit. So the part of actually finding this opportunity to go in isn't really included in the book because it actually was a long process. Um, While I was covering and following, researching North Korea for a decade, I followed many threads of how to get in there, some of which worked. So I went in uh, multiple times this university that was being set up was just one of the thread. So I applied for a job the minute I heard, which was back in 2008. And I pursued them very aggressively for three years following. I never knew such a university was going to happen because a lot of these projects never happened when it comes to North Korea. They were brand new at this because this had never happened. A foreign university being set up there. Also, there were Fundamental evangelicals and proselytizing is an executionable crime in North Korea. So, what that means is, why is North Korea wasting any time with fundamental evangelicals? You know, they shook hands, the evangelicals who are from around the world and North Korean government where the evangelical decided that they're gonna basically spend all this money to set up a very fancy school for the elite. They're basically funding the education of the the ruling class of North Korea. And North Korea was supposed, was going to basically ask them to not say anything about religion. So basically coming here, but pretend you're not evangelicals was their deal.
0: So what, what was the evangelicals motivation
1: I mean they do it all the time, you know, where you set up some sort of um charitable organization, the ultimate goal would be ultimately, you know, people will be converted, except that's not on paper. You know, it's not outwardly nobody would know that, but you know, the organization is actually funded by, you know, Christians, but fundamentally.
0: So so they were they were basically hoping they could sort of quietly spread the religion without getting in trouble of it.
1: And, and that they're also the first ones there, you know, if North Korea were to fall, which in their estimation, that would be the eventual course, then they're the first ones there.
0: Right. They're already on the ground. They've, they've already established some trust. That makes sense.
1: So it's really a, a fascinating, that whole angle of what evangelicals are doing in North Korea is not an area I really touched because you know, the book really had to focus on the young men, North Korean and their psychology is what the book is. But obviously these evangelicals angle, which I went in with about 30 of them and living with them and pretending to be one of them. So that's a big part of my existence there because these evangelicals, although the North Korean regime knew who they were, Their deal was to never talk about it. So what that means is they're kind of undercover. (laughs) (laughs) And and I only got away, I'm not um, religious at all in any religion. So the only way I got away being there, not knowing anything about the Bible, because we were actually allowed to have a weekly mass, which I had to take part in secret in our dorm. And, and how could I do a church service, you know, where we do prayers and things like that if when I don't actually know anything about it? So that's a definitely something I were worried about being there for so many months. But one of the reasons that I did get away with that is because they kind of had to be low-key about it.
0: Oh, that makes sense.
1: So basically yeah. it's like double undercover, you know. Here I am writing the book in secret. There were minders living directly below my room. We were in this dormitory where we weren't allowed to ever leave, except with these minders on a guided tour outside the campus. And those guided tours all had to do with a great leader. And the minders living, their job is to watch over me. So they're uh, living right below my room, 24-7, watching me. So, you know, that the really... My only, uh, in a way, people I could relate, you know, that my people were actually the evangelicals. They're the ones that I came into North Korea with, except I was not one of them. Right. So, and then with his students who I lived with, they were never allowed out. So we are basically prisoners all together. And the kids I became incredibly close with but I wasn't really a teacher. You know, my job was to write down everything that I was observing into a book.
0: Well, one of the things that really strikes me about the story is that you have to lead this double life, almost a triple life, because you have to pretend to be an evangelical so that you can pretend to be a teacher. And it's basically a spy movie where you have all these layers of deception and you're effectively in prison. But so is everyone else in the country. You know, it's the thing you keep coming back to that, it sounds like the students have to do a lot of pretending. One passage that really struck me was you were writing about how they would talk about like happy memories from childhood that couldn't have happened because the age they were, their childhood was in the middle of the worst famine the country had ever had, and so there's you know there's just this intense pressure to talk about how North Korea is the greatest country and you know the glorious dear leader has made all this possible, and so it seems like everybody's living a series of lies and and a double life, not just
1: you. I mean, that's why, you know, it took me 10 years of trying to understand what North Korea is, going in there repeatedly, interviewing so many defectors. The actual reality of what it's like to live inside such, uh, people have all these words for it, like totalitarian, whatever, dictatorship. It's really a singular existence, what it means to be in North Korea, that's been that way for three generations. You're exactly right. What does that mean when every single thing is a lie, right? I mean, their history is made up, the great leader stuff, you know, most of which is just all made up. They're not allowed um, internet. You know, these were, the school was called Pyongyang University of Science and Technology. It's an MIT equivalent They didn't know what the internet was in 2011. These were students who are computer majors, who are also coming from the brightest in their nation. Um, They all came from, remember, they were plucked out of their schools because this was year 100. So they came from Kim Il-sung University and Kim Chek University. Those are Harvard and MIT of North Korea. So these were incredibly bright students. And yet they weren't allowed to know things like Facebook or, you know, literally what internet is. But they knew that something was missing. You know, it was very clear as I lived with them. They knew they didn't know, except they couldn't really say that. They had to keep repeating how great their country was. And you're exactly right about their past. There were so many things that weren't allowed yet they would always say, you know, how wonderful, free, beautiful their lives are. And they just didn't know anything about anything. You know, They didn't know that there was a train between England and France. They knew there was an ocean there, but they didn't know. They'd never seen Taj Mahal if you were to show them a picture. They'd never heard of uh, most things that the rest of the world knows. And I think What is really amazing is the fact that they didn't know and to realize that you are really knowledge is being uh, robbed from you. You know, they knew that things were constantly being kept from them. And I think living with me, who's an outsider, you know, some of those moments would happen where, you know, their lack. Or there's something is wrong in their world, they would let that knowledge be seen by me. And I think that it was a very complicated thing to be an undercover journalist in that world. Oh, I can imagine. Hoping to catch those moments. You know, I actually lived with them and would eat with them. And they also all watch each other. That's another thing. They're never alone. They all travel in pairs. They have to report on each other. Every North Korean has to report on each other once a week in a meeting. So I knew everything we were saying to each other was being recorded. And yet I would glimpse these moments when clearly something is wrong in their world and that they knew it. You know, I mean, there was a moment where they all said on their birthdays, they sing songs to celebrate. And songs are always about, you know, how great their country is and the brotherhood and their happiness. And yet one student did say uh, rock and roll. And the minute he said that, everyone around us froze and all looked down. And I knew that, you know, he shouldn't have said that. He knew it, he shouldn't have said it. Everybody else knew it. Now it was fear that just descended upon us in that moment. And I was afraid that I was now getting a student in serious trouble. Trouble in their world is serious. You know, it's.
0: Oh, I can't imagine. But yeah. yet he knew what that was and his peers knew what rock and roll was.
1: So, there, yeah, absolutely. So there were many things like that where slips would happen about their world. Cracks or their unhappiness. And yet, and yet, I mean, I think this is the complicated thing, which I think. Literally living in there amongst them made me see that it's a very, you know, that's what abuse is. Abuse is, you know that, you know, violence is being acted upon you. And yet, what if you are a part of that violence? You know, like, they love their great leader at the same time. Their great leader is the one that made them. It's, it's kind of like a religion, the great leader they only celebrate the great leader birthdays, not their own birthdays. They really, the whole nation is about everything that has to do with the great leader is the reason why they exist. So if you actually come from this world, which exists because of God or Jesus, which for them is the great leader. Yeah, yeah. You love what that is. At the same time, you realize maybe everything you've been, are not quite true, you know. Like their world is not the greatest in the world because they can't even travel between towns. Never mind outside, and they realize like I'm there, which means I'm free to travel.
0: I was going to say, your your just your existence as an American must have been, I guess, just very eye opening to them because you, you know, were born in South Korea. You've lived all over the U.S. and have traveled around, and sort of everything that your whole life was everything that was denied to them.
1: I mean there were those other things I wasn't allowed to talk about one of the conditions I was you know had to agree to being there was that I could never talk about anything I couldn't talk about the outside world I couldn't talk about like we can do this outside which you can't you know which makes their world into a worse one so that's what I was not allowed to talk about however living with each other and there were 20 so 19 and 20, you know, little things start start breaking down. Little rules, you know, although we weren't supposed to talk about the outside world, sometimes it would come out, you know, that I've traveled a lot. But they wouldn't really ask, what is England like? What is Paris like? You know, They they kind of go quiet because it's actually, those are questions are not allowed. Right, right. But I think what's really was amazing, you know, because also I, for them, so these evangelicals, there were about half of them were Westerners, Caucasians, from the Netherlands, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, all these countries, UK. And then the other half were from outside world, like US, but of Korean origin, like me, um, South Korean origin. So for them, I was possibly one of the few who are fluent in Korean. So they felt sort of affinity because I'm Korean and I'm South Korean, yet at the same time, I'm a Korean speaking Korean with them. Yet I was what they considered enemy is, they're technically at war with South Korea, North Korea. So I'm actually from their enemy land And that war, North Koreans are taught, was the result of American imperialism. So their biggest enemies are the U.S. and South Korea, which is what I embodied for them. So it was confusing for them in a way because I'm also the only thing that exists for them other than their great leader schedule. They were under this unbelievable militant schedule which all had to do with great leader, great leader. um, you know, They do things like exercise, group exercise, uh, shouting their loyalty to the great leader. They go and uh, guard the great leader building. There is a great leader study building within the campus. Great leader study building is a place you go to study the greatness of the great leader. It's an empty building, kind of like a church. You know, when you really look at it like a, a religious aspect, it's actually not that surprising, right? so it's their church place of worship where you go and study all about the great leader and their job was to go and guard the building all night so because they had all these duties that had to do with the great leader
0: was there anyone even to guard it from
1: no 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 it's that the guarding is really to show your um they grew up doing this you know and these are things that I never knew. I mean, I'd been following North Korea for so long. I didn't know they grew up doing this. Every town has this great leader buildings and every North Korean takes turns guarding them from like when they were little. You know, there was like since they're four, five. And, wow. I, and then they don't tell you this until, you know, I found out by, because they all take turns. Like six of them always guarded the building all night standing outside. And North Korea is very cold. When it was freezing and there would be like snowstorm. And although these were the creme de la creme, they didn't even really have warm coats. And I was worried that they have to stand out there. And I would say, it's really horrible weather today. And I hope you don't have to go out there. Because when they have to go out and guard the building, they change it into this military outfit. Okay. And I um, would say that I hope the weather is so bad. And they said teacher, it's not about the weather. This is an honor, it's not about the weather. And of course, when you think about it from their perspective, of course it's not about the weather. It's like me saying, oh, the weather sucks. I, I hope you don't have to do this. And they were telling me it's actually an honor they have grown up with. So it's a psychology of their world that I was beginning to understand.
0: And if you really believe that it's an act of devotion to guard this building for dear leader, it's probably a greater act of devotion to do it in the cold or in the rain. You know, you're yeah, sort of, you're, you're proving yeah. your loyalty even more.
1: Yeah, when they say teacher, this has nothing to do with the weather. Yeah. You know, they were teaching me something in a way. And there were so many things like that about their world that I began to understand. And I think you begin to also understand enormity of what's at stake, how different it is. They've been living this way for three generations all of them thought kimchi, the Korean pickle dish, was the official food of the Atlanta (laughs) Olympics. Talk about the American Olympics when it happened in Atlanta. And the nonsense of that made up fake news was in their textbooks. So if I were to try to discuss that with them, that it doesn't really make sense. Why would kimchi be the official Olympic food of an Olympic that happens in America you can't really talk about those things because it's, first of all, it's in their textbooks. Second, that's what their great leader told them. So one can't really disagree with that.
0: And so you could probably get in serious trouble for contradicting that.
1: There were just so many things that changes the way you look at North Korea. Like it was impossible to teach them how to write an essay. And that really struck me. I remember having a hard time coming up with a thing called thesis sentence, you know, however old I was. And then you realize when you look at what an essay is later on in life, you realize it's really all about trying to prove your point, right? You try to convince the reader, you know, this is my argument. You know, you start with an introduction and you go through a body with a thesis sentence and you do a conclusion, you know, there's a logic to the whole thing. That was impossible. And, and at first, I just thought it was impossible because it's just hard to teach what a thesis sentence is. It was impossible because in their world, you don't prove anything. You don't use introduction because you only talk about the great leader. They only have one television station and one newspaper. They've never been allowed out. They all live under orders. They never choose anything. They don't choose jobs. They don't choose college. They don't choose anything. And if you are in a world where you have never known what a thing called choice is, then you don't come up with things like thesis sentence, try to prove something. So
0: you almost wouldn't have any experience even making an argument.
1: There is no such thing. So I think for me to literally make them understand, I actually thought introduction, you know, I mean, you don't need to explain what an introduction is, I thought, but I would try to make them understand the concept of you introduce something. And they're like, why? And no, they wouldn't say why. They're like, "What? I don't understand what you mean by that. And then I spent so many class lessons, tried to even come up with making them understand. And then I realized at some point it dawned on me, my brightest students couldn't understand this. And they were so bright, you know, they spoke English so well, it was remarkable. And yet I realized, oh, essays are about critical thinking, and you can't do things like critical thinking in a world where 100% everything is about the great leader. The whole system is designed in order to dumb down their nation. So things like critical thinking uses the brain, and it's designed so that people don't use their brain. And I think What was amazing to me is is me as a teacher using these tools. You know, I don't have the reporting tools there. So I'm using teacher tools like teaching them critical thinking, um, making them write an essay. I also made them write me weekly letters with an excuse that it's necessary in order to learn English, how to write letters. So in those letters, some of their feelings would come through personal feelings so that was a method that i used for reporting really for the book and through those things that i used i was beginning to get a glimpse of how they think what this world is and how horrendously it was heartbreaking that this has existed for 70 years
0: oh of course and one thing i keep thinking about when you talk about that this has gone on for three generations, it means that there aren't that many people who even remember what life was like before.:
1: They're all dead. You also realize not only because of the time, but also, I think anyone who rebelled had been killed. I think
0: yeah,'m sure is
1: really so absolute and so merciless. And there were moments which happened in the book that I saw utter, utter mercilessness depicted when we actually left the town. I left the campus for the tour outside. I saw a minder shutting down an old woman when we were actually using her. Uh, One of the teachers had to use a bathroom and there was actually no public bathroom. And we went into this private home of someone, which was the first time I saw supposedly a private home outside Pyongyang and the minder was not our minder. It was like a town's minder was also there. And that minder, because the woman was inside that, this old woman who really looked like she was in her eighties or nineties was inside her room. And she was a sliding door and she opened the door to see who was outside using her outhouse. And the town's minder came out of nowhere and he shouted at the woman in Korean, and basically just screamed at her to get back into her room and she was so scared and she immediately shut the door and went inside and I remember at that moment everything was so wrong about this episode that although this woman is a private citizen living in her home it is really not her home is it if you're not even allowed to open your door to look out to see who's using your bathroom. Oh, and yeah. Who is this town's minder? Like every, every community because they're basically there's this minder slash policeman everywhere. And the fear that I saw in this old woman's face when someone, the minder yelled at her. So the system that works in North Korea is beyond our scope of imagination. What happens there? But I think what I was after was trying to understand it in our terms so that the reader outside can grasp what this is, not just as some exotic story of horrible suffering, but actual lived experience, which is what I did, you know, because I was trapped in that school for six months.
0: What's remarkable, like, to me, just hearing how how closed off and repressed everything everyone there is that in only six months, you managed to get a sense of these kids' inner lives because it seems like it would take a long time to break through.
1: It's actually, um, time in North Korea is very different because everything is watched 24-7 and you follow the schedule of what they give you. You basically—it's all regimented, the life because there's so many duties. Because my duty had to do with my student's duty, and there had so many great many leader duties. And also, it's so tiring to watch yourself all the time. It's a system of self-balance.
0: I was going to say it, it must have been so stressful for you, knowing you're always being watched, knowing you have multiple secrets that could be discovered, and then also not having, you know, not being in control of your own time. And even having to watch yourself with the students, it has to be very hard to just assume they don't know things like that, you know, what the Taj Mahal is. There must have been so many moments when you could have slipped up.
1: Um, always. I mean, the fear was there always, every second. Also, it is just exhausting to be, you know, I mean, it's an odd example, but living this pandemic life in the worst part of the pandemic lockdown was the barest resemblance to North Korea. I remember thinking uh, where you're not, you can't go anywhere. You have to watch everything. Yeah,
0: you're always on your guard.
1: You're always on your guard. Um, You can't, like love can't really save you, you know? I think I actually have a line in the book when I realized love cannot actually save me. In fact, the ones you love the most, you can get them killed. That's what existence in North Korea is. They have a thing called three-generation penalty, which what you do, they will punish your loved ones first. So that's why North Koreans don't go against the rules because they can be sent to a gulag, but so can their parents, their children, you know, their wives and husbands. So that's how, in a way, it's the whole entire world. There is a hostage, but I think... My existence was a particular one because I didn't stumble upon it. You know, I knew what I was getting myself into, which I knew that the chance of me pulling it off was less than 5%. I mean, this had never been done before where someone actually went in and lived amongst them for a length of time. You know, I think people might have gone in the past as like tourists or something for like five days or whatever it is, you know, but you don't actually go under another guise and live there for months and months and months. I mean, it's not a um, feasible cover. And, and, and your
0: and your previous visits had been sort of diplomatic events, weren't they?
1: No, 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 no. I went in- um, Or
0: media, or media time, events, I mean.
1: First time I went in also undercover for like eight days in 2002, um, but that wasn't, you know, it was my first experience. So I didn't go in prepare like this. First time I went in as a, a great leader, like a fan club. I mean, which,
0: wow.
1: yeah, I ended up writing a, a cover essay for the New York books. There was something similar, but the other times I did go as a journalist for Harper's Magazine, which really worried me why I passed and got in this time. And I realized it's because Harper's is, I was not a staff writer anywhere. You know, it was a long narrative piece. I wasn't on the list of these journalists. And also, because I'd written a novel, in a way, I wasn't, you know, in their culture, like a novelist and journalist are completely different things entirely, which they are. So I think I passed this time as just like an evangelical English teacher is how I passed. But what was really, um, because I knew that they also go through my stuff, you know, the minders and my previous visits, my I knew that my computer, they'd gone through it. You can tell it's different when you open it. And my, you know, my suitcase was definitely, you know, they went through it. So knowing that saving my document was a really a big homework, how I do this and keep it safe and keep it with me. So I created a document within a document. So it looked like a school note, but it was actually the book. But the book begins like page 100 after grammar lessons. Oh, this right. Study. Okay. And then I would erase it. Like I would write it, you know, like 4 a.m. I would get up because I have to start getting ready to teach, you know, from like 6.30 a.m. So 4 a.m. I would write on the same thing at, in the middle of the night. And then I would save it onto a disc drive that I brought with me, which was the smallest disc drive that looked like a necklace pendant. <sighs> And then I kept that, um, saved it, and then I raised everything from the computer, and and you know got rid of all the trace of it, deleted all the trace every single time I sign off, so there's nothing on my computer. And then I only have this document on this small pendant. I had a couple of them, so I had it like around my neck. And then I also saved it on an SD card, which. Then I would hide it in the room in case I lose the one that's on my body. So right, the one right. on my body, I had it with me 24-7. Like I, even when I would go shower, like I, I had it with me next to me, you know, like I would never. Yeah, yeah.
0: You wouldn't fill let it out of your side. That's...
1: And then I would have a notebook. I also carried my laptop, you know, which I was allowed to have since I'm a teacher with me right. 24-7. And then I did have a notebook in case I couldn't write it down, like I I would write down whatever, just uh, quotes and then rip it up, you know, and flush it down the toilet. So I really did have a hard copy and also digital copy. I didn't know if this is how people do things. There's no handbook for how to do undercover work in North Korea. So I was just winging it and trying to make it as simple as possible.
0: it really is a spy story.
1: I mean, it is to their eyes. And I knew exactly what the consequences would be. You know, I knew that this would be, if I were caught with these notes, clearly the best scenario would be to get kicked out. The worst scenario is get detained and detainment could go, you know, I mean, Otto Ormbier, you know, the young college student from Virginia who took down the poster, got 16 years in a gulag and then ended up dying. So the punishment for breaking their rules is really a, I mean, lifetime sentence really in a gulag was I knew what we were looking at, if not execution. So the fact that I'm also South Korean was not that helpful, I thought. Not just American, but South Korean. So enemy, you know, it's really be a crime against their national security really from their perspective, right?
0: Of oh, course, yeah,
1: so knowing that, I think the fear was palpable. you know, it was um every time I would go to sleep, I would be scared that would I wake up tomorrow
0: oh it had to be It had to be with you every minute were, were you ever were you ever afraid that even if you didn't do anything wrong and didn't get caught with anything, they still might not let you leave?
1: yeah, I mean, I think that evangel- at least one evangelical colleague with time was becoming less convinced that I was a Christian. you know, I was afraid that, I mean, how long could I pull that off, right? Right, right. That was worrying me. So there was that tension with, I mean, I didn't think they would report me to the North Korean authority, but they would pull me and then kick me out, right?
0: Right, right. But again, that's the best case scenario.
1: And then also there was a whole drama that's in the book towards the end I was trying so hard to get my students to watch Harry Potter, and um, which they never heard of until us it was in a textbook, so they kind of heard about this. They knew it was something really exciting that they missed out on, except they all told me they read the book. Because of course, North Korea, they know everything, but then they would say things like, is Quidditch really fun? Have you played it before? And, you know, that's the sport that you play on. You know, you fly around on a broomstick.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Obviously, they didn't know what it was. (laughs) And I think it was really heartbreaking for me that they were so curious what this was. So I had this idea of showing them the film. And we were actually allowed to pick one film to show to students. They were not allowed a foreign film. And one of the young evangelicals had a copy of DVD with her, which was a miracle, I thought. So I suggested we show this to the students and students got so excited, they couldn't believe it. And then, you know, even among evangelicals, there were uh, different uh, degrees of their fundamentalism because they came from kind of different sects in different countries. And another evangelical became so furious because she said that Harry Potter is devil because um, there's witchcraft in it. So she and I got into a fight uh, over this whole issue of showing Harry Potter and she wouldn't let it happen. Ultimately, I was not allowed to show it to the whole students. She told me I taught two groups each group was like 24 students, 26 students. And she said, I can only choose one group to show it to. And for me, that was like choosing one child over the other. You know, they were so excited, but she said, I can only show one of the two groups, but not to all of them. So this fight that we had where I was weeping by the end, because um, I felt like she was blocking their glimpse of the outside world.
0: Yeah, so yeah.
1: They denied their whole life. This fight we had was really something bigger than what it seems. You know, when you go through the journey of living there and I remember weeping and weeping and weeping and by then I had developed such tenderness to my students and they, to me also, I mean, imagine their life. You know, also another thing that's really fascinating is that when you've been abused all your life, which I consider North Korea to be a a country of abuse, The students are much younger than 19, you know, they're 19 and 20, but they felt like they could be eight. So they are these young men who are all infantilized because they've never made a decision for themselves all their lives. They're trapped here. They've never been on internet or any of it. They don't know anything other than the great leader. And basically the only thing other than the great leader they had was me. So the way kids just hang on to like their parents when they're like five, you know, like they yeah, jump yeah. up and down when you show although they saw you in the morning like you know like they can't believe that you're home again you know like, <laughs> that's kind of what it was like it was really a bizarre way to be a teacher like i felt like i was i was also the only woman you know it's it's a it's a campus of 270 young men so i was one of the only women other than the evangelicals that was the only one so for them it was like i was their mom i was yeah, yeah. I was also the only Korean among these Western evangelical teachers. So there was this bond that we had that was really goes beyond anything I'd ever experienced. So I think there is, I guess, because we are talking about why is this not a movie, there was definitely that teacher and a student bond thing that I've seen in films where it goes beyond teacher and a student. Phenomenal thing happened in our uh, relationship. And as The Great Leader is dying. You know, the backdrop through all of this is there's actually regime change happening in the background. You know, it's not an accident. Great Leader too, Kim Jong-il, dies by the end of that year. Kim Jong-il had been sick for a number of years. And they were trying to bring up Kim Jong-un's presence across North Korea as the person who's now going to inherit. So they were also outside world, Arab Spring was happening that year. I mean, it's not a coincidence why North Korea isolated their creme de la creme young men who are the sons of North Korea's biggest powerful men. That's what my students were. They were all sons of North Korea's leadership. So they put them away in a safe environment, in the shelter, because they were afraid of their country going into a chaos you know, like Arab Spring.
0: Of course.
1: While one great leader is dying, the next one is rising power. They isolated the young next generation, powerful ones who are going to be leadership and shelter them. That's what that school was. That's who I was living with that year. So it was a vulnerable time, the single most vulnerable time in North Korea's history.
0: And they're not just sheltered in the sense that they're protected, if anything, you know, if chaos were to erupt, but they're also under lock and key, in case there was some sort of struggle for power. Anybody else of significance in the country, it sounds like, their their children were, you know, locked up by the regime.
1: It's absolutely. I mean, because it was a sudden transference. You know, my students were so upset. There were like dialects. They were so proud of the fact that they go to Kim Il Sung University. Kim Il Sung is Harvard of North Korea and yet suddenly they've been plucked away from home into this brand new university they never heard of, theft by foreigners, learning English. You know, it was called a school of science and technology, and there were no science or um, technology teachers. It was only old evangelical people teaching them English. It made no sense. It was an excuse for a school, but it was not a school. So Clearly, it was a shelter, political shelter, because political storm was coming because regime change was coming. It was very obvious to me when I realized every other people their age are in construction field this year, except these 270 young men. So who are they? I mean, that was my big question. So on a different level, it's almost like a mystery, right? I was trying to understand who are my students? what is going on in this country? Something huge is gonna happen in this country because they've now isolated these 270 young men here in this secret location. And of course the answer was made clear to me by the end when Kim jong Il dies and young Kim Jong-un rose to power. While this was going on inside that secret campus, I was really falling in love with all my students. And learning, in some way, they were no different than kids their age outside. And how lovely. I mean, humanity is like that, you know? I mean, they were just really lovely 19-year-old kids who were homesick and missing their moms and very scared of what's going to happen to them.
0: Well, that's the thing. Kids are kids, you know, regardless of the environment that you put them in. It had to have been so heartbreaking to leave them behind even as you must have been tremendously relieved to be able to to go back
1: I mean it was both because my last day wasn't planned that way I mean I really felt like you know when I heard I was packing my suitcase because I was supposed to leave the next day and then there was a knock and I was told Kim Jong-il just died I remember thinking oh my god (laughs) I guess there is God. <laughs> here I am, <laughs> like, even so, because I was like, "Kim Jong Il died," and here is my final chapter. <laughs> I was like a writer.
0: Oh, I was going to say you couldn't have you couldn't have written a better ending.
1: I was like, "Here's my ending to the story," and I got to also see how my students reacted, which was their world just shattered. The sorrow I saw in their faces were nothing like what I saw later on on American television. You know, people weeping and crying, exaggerated before some camera, because obviously some Western camera was capturing those moments. The sorrow I saw in my students were far more powerful. You know, it's like soul had been taken out of them. They were devastated beyond belief. It's like their parents had just are gone. And I cried watching them because I loved them and I was leaving them and I cried because I could feel how sad they were. And I remember weeping because they were sad. I was sad.
0: Well, you had said this was effectively a religion and he, and he was their God. So I can't imagine that, you know, God dying with what, what that does to somebody.
1: I mean, it's a really a, a complicated position they're in, but I think that priceless and the most special thing about experience really was in some way really understanding them and empathizing with them when i think about my time there you know my bond with them i mean we play like sports together and um basketball together i would always practice i would play with them but i tried to get better i practiced it was right under their dorm so all the windows their faces would be pressed against the window, watching me do the, um, you know, what do you call it when you're just doing the, you know, getting the ball into the hoop? Yeah, just,
0: take, just taking shots.
1: Taking shots. Yeah. <laughs> so I would do that in my, in my spare time. And I guess they weren't allowed out of, you know, they had to, they had their own duties in the dormitory. But at some point, all their faces were pressed to the window And then next day at lunch, they'll tell me, oh, teacher, yesterday, you got in 51 shots out of 125. Wow. (laughs) He's like, last time it was 43 and you are getting better, teacher. (laughs) (laughs) So it was one of their pastimes to see how better I was getting with it because, you know, I was just so terrible when we played together because the only... (laughs) Sports, they played with soccer or basketball, because obviously you don't need any. I mean, although they were the creme de la creme, they literally had nothing. So those sports are the only things you can play if you just have a ball. And also those are group activities. You don't do it alone because everything there is done as a group. Oh,
0: of course. Yeah, yeah.
1: What was also amazing was the resilience. You know, in this situation, they really felt like prison or a gulag there were so many moments of just laughter pure laughter and private jokes and I mean there were boys you know like at first they told me they had no interest in girls because they only served their great leader but with time you know girls became the topic of you know the letters to me they'll tell me secretly they do have a girlfriend although you know they haven't seen her in, <laughs> whenever they've been sent here yeah yeah <laughs> They're not allowed to like have phone or they were not allowed to send letters so it's literally they were just disconnected from outside world so like their jokes about the girls um they wanted to get better with the English because they thought that once they go home they can try to impress the girls with their English skill oh, yeah. <laughs> and there were um many just adorable absolutely adorable I remember um I remember also assigning them how to get a girlfriend as like a, as essay topic. Huh. <laughs> you know, like it was just to see how they actually have girlfriends in North Korea, you know, because they, because every lesson plan, I had to get it approved by the counterpart, which are the North Korean staff. They had to look at everything I was doing. My class was recorded and reported on So I had to make a reason why I was assigning something so nonsensical to them. But I said, you know, how to essay. (laughs) I have to teach them the grammar of how to.
0: (laughs) Right, right, right.
1: So from those things, I was able to get a glimpse of North Korean young life, of social life, and how they meet girls. And when we brought up those topics, they suddenly became boys their age. And, yeah, remember, yeah, yeah. Um, and how, in a way, divided it was. Because once they started talking about the great leader, it's as if this other personality sets in, you know, and they start just basically regurgitating all these rules and and achievements of that great leader. So there is definitely like a divided side, which is not that surprising. It happens through abuse, you know? I mean, yeah, I don't yeah. realize like that, but I feel like I was able to glimpse what actual abusive society can do to one individual. It was heartbreaking. They became my kids, you know? And I felt like I really got to know them more and more. And they were just so unique and individual and hilarious. And them having to live this way forever and ever became heart-wrenching.
0: Oh, of course. And I'm curious, how how do they meet girls when everything they do is so controlled?
1: funny ones would say it was so easy because he was so handsome because (laughs) he was from the best family and from the best they would always tell me the best avenues in Pyongyang because I would imagine that's kind of like I don't know Beverly Hills or Madison Avenue
0: right right right
1: (laughs) so they would say I live in this you know street and I go to Kim Il-sung University and I'm so handsome so all the girls would all say to him, you know, what a good looking gentleman. So it was never an issue. <laughs> but from around- But, but the,
0: before, before they were sort of locked into the school, they, they had enough freedom of emotion to, you know, to walk down the street and see pretty girls and-
1: Yeah, I mean, they also have a lot of group activities. So- they oh, would of course, have, yeah, yeah. Like a uh, youth meetings and, you know, according to district, because obviously long distance relationship would be hard there because they're not really allowed to travel. They don't have a lot of time.
0: Right, right. They don't
1: have a lot of time because there's so many duties to fulfill.
0: And don't have the communications that, you know, like kids here have. You can't just text your boyfriend or whatever.
1: Right. It's not as freely. Even if you are, you know, allowed like limited version because you're elite, it's still not enough for you to really see someone who's I mean certainly not in different town but even within Pyongyang in the other um, district because you mix really within your district so within those you know schools they would meet or a lot of activities youth activities that they had to go to okay okay that's seemed to be where their romantic life happened
0: so should we get into directors and actors or is there more of the story you want to talk about it's a remarkable story because it's so many different kinds of story. It is the inspiring teacher makes the, you know has the bond with the students story, as you were saying. It's also a spy story about how you have to be very very secretive, and you know live these live these double lives to fool not only the North Koreans but also the evangelicals. And then it's also just this glimpse into this world that's not like anything else on Earth. So I feel I feel like there's so much. There's so much to put into this movie. there's so much tension, you know every minute. and there's also so much fascination at what these kids' lives are like and so much sympathy for them. And you kind of you touch on so many different aspects of North Korean life, even just from your limited perspective of being kind of locked into this school, we often talk in the show about different approaches to take for a movie. You know, sometimes if you're doing a comedy, it could be a dark comedy, it can be very silly, it can be. You, know, you can take different tones. But here, I feel like you want it to be all these things at once. You want it to be this very tense story of you going undercover. You also want it to be a story about you making a bond with these students. You also want it to be a little bit documentary about, well, this is what life in North Korea is like under this abusive regime. You know, you kind of have to put it all in there. So do you have any ideas about who could direct this and handle all that?
1: I mean, actually, the movie that I always thought you're exactly right, by the way, Mike. With all those different, I always thought that um, there are those different huge stories within this one story. But the movie I always thought was most model for this kind of story was actually *Brookback Mountain*. On me. Huh.
0: That that makes some sense because it's that it's that same feeling of not being able to express yourself or say who you are and all of Ang Lee's films are about people who can't express their true feelings you know whether it's somebody who can't acknowledge they're in love with somebody or all of his characters you know even Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon like all of his characters are very closed off and oh,
1: um I think about it that way yeah I mean probably I just think that um it's not because like Broken Mountain is my favorite film or any of that That's not why. I think I was I was really struck when I saw that because I thought anyone else would have made this. I mean, it's a gay cowboy love affair story. Right. And he made it just into a love story that by the end I was weeping and everyone was we we all forgot, like also the landscape of uh, Wyoming which is very overpowering and how he was able to use that. And it's there, but it didn't become like a gay film or cowboy film or like landscape film, American, you know, country film. It just became this like enormousness of what he was talking about came through, but it was a human love story.
0: Well, the, the line from a review that I remember that stayed with me is that it would have been very easy to make a movie about... The impossibility of you know two gay men falling in love in that era, but it was really about the impossibility of loving this man, Heath Ledger's character. Yeah, you know it, it's it's such a singular story about those characters, which then makes it feel universal. Even if yeah. you're not if you're not gay, if you're not a cowboy, like it doesn't matter. It speaks to you, to anybody who's ever, you know, either loved somebody and not been able to be with them, or like, yeah, I think he's I think he's a great choice, and he's just got such a strong filmography where he's done. So many good movies in so many different genres he can handle all kinds of material
1: i thought anyone also just make this into about like north korea north korea is such a powerful symbol on its own the weird dictator whatever it is i could care less of the weirdness of north korea you know i really i find it distasteful so i think maybe that's why i thought of about me like that how he could really take that topic and make into something that anybody could see and empathize and be amazed by.
0: And, and I think you'd really do want to ground the story not in a look how, you know, strange North Korea is, but really in your story and your experience. And then this, the kids' experience too.
1: Yeah, well, because I, only then it becomes a universal story. Only yeah. that, you know, enormity of what's at stake, right?
0: Oh, like, absolutely
1: that really should come through. Then it becomes heartbreaking. That's why it was heartbreaking to me. And also, I mean, I really play that down in the book, the danger I was facing, but the danger I was facing was, it was impossible for me to come out of there alive, you know? And, right, and,
0: and you somehow did.
1: And I did, and that's only possible. I think that is also something I hate like when there's these movies of like savior going somewhere and like (laughs) being brave journalists. I mean, that's not. I, I don't care about that. But I think risking your life becomes worthy when the loveliness of uniqueness of those individuals, you know, my students, become very clear in the story. Then you realize why it's important that this woman, American journalist went in there to get the reality. And then what I tried to do becomes actually important in the viewer's mind, you know what I mean? And I feel like Ang Lee could do it. Oh yeah. Like he did it in that movie. He convinced all of us, you know?
0: Well, I think in your story, the fact that you downplay the violence, because there is this constant threat of being imprisoned or being executed. But the fact that you downplay that, means that the focus of the story is on how the experience changed you and and the bond you formed with these students and that really is the heart of the story but and I as far as Ang Lee being the person to tell that i i like that better than my than the directors i came up with who i, I you? think you'd be terrific but
1: who are well, the ones you came up? <laughs> i only have Ang Lee, no one else <laughs>
0: so... oh yeah well i uh, i only have two and i started looking at korean directors because I don't think it's impossible for a non-Korean director to tell the story well, because it's really just about the emotions and the, your experiences. But I feel like a South Korean director is going to have a more personal connection to the story and a, just a better understanding of the North. And it was it seemed like a good place to start. And then when you talk about South Korean directors, sort of the obvious starting place is Bong Joon-ho, because he's been on such a remarkable run of, of terrific movies. And he also seems to be able to make a great film in any genre and he always speaks to social issues in his films. And so I I felt like he would have an interesting take on the story, but he also felt like a little obvious and on the nose. Uh, So I also liked uh, Hong Sang-soo, and I'm I'm, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing all these Korean names, so I apologize. But he's a Korean art house director who's less well-known in America, but he's directed 26 films in the last 25 years. Some of them have competed with Cannes, Venice. Uh, he, at the Berlin F- Festival, he won Best Director last year for The Woman Who Ran. And the thing that struck me about him is he's known for having a really realistic style and focusing on people's everyday lives and making movies that are very down to earth and very driven by dialogue and not action. And so I think that makes him a good fit here because for one, the story, there, it's not, there's not action. There's not, even though there's this ever present danger, it doesn't escalate to anything. There isn't a, you're not arrested. There isn't a gunfight. There isn't anything. It's really just this constant tension. But the real story is the day-to-day lives of these kids and of North Koreans in general. And that seems to be, his, you know, in all those films, he seems very interested in kind of the mundane details. A lot of his films have just long scenes of people talking and eating food and, you know, walking down the street. And it, it feels, his movies feel very lived in and very down to earth. I think that's the approach you want to take for this story. The only worry is that he's a writer-director and he's never adapted into someone else's writing. He's written all of his own movies. So who knows if he'd say yes to our imaginary movie.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> am I allowed to disagree?
0: No, of course. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, so Hong Sang-soo and Bong joon are the most famous South Korean directors at this point. I can't really see Hong Sang-soo ever being interested. You know, he's Eric Rommel of Korea you're right, he's not really interested in the larger, that's not really what gets him going, right? His films are generally um, almost like an interior dynamic of very few people.
0: Yeah, I thought I thought maybe that worked because it is this very interior story about, one, you have to have this very hidden interior life, but the, the story is very self-contained too with you in these students because it doesn't sound like you spend a lot of time with anybody else apart from the evangelicals a little bit. But I also agree that he probably wouldn't do. It seems like his films are all very personal to him.
1: Yeah, it's about him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hong <laughs> Sang Soo is a very much about him over and over. <laughs> well, over
0: like, <laughs> like like I said, I like I like your choice a lot better. I think I said this already, but what I really love about Ang Lee as a director for this is that is that so many of his films are about characters like internal t- turmoil and people who can't really express what they're feeling for one reason or another. And that just seems so perfect for this.
1: I mean, he's pretty amazing. And I should see that film again and why it stuck with me and why I always thought of without you, there is no us as Brokeback Mountain. I think because I was also really struck by how he made the landscape. Because cowboys, you know, landscape is so important and landscape was always there in that film. And I felt like by the end, landscape was a character of its own. And landscape became like, oppressive and landscape became like America. And I was thinking that's kind of what North Korea is, the documentary angle you talked about, you know, like this ever-present great leader and all those endless North Korean rules and images and propaganda. And I could imagine under Ang Lee's direction, it would be that beautiful character landscape. You know what I mean? Without it becoming some sort of like, we are North Korea thing but I feel like of all the people he could turn that into like an epic without resorting to cliche or you know what I mean
0: oh exactly. well you want you want North Korea to feel like a real place and not just this Western idea of what North Korea is or even a South Korean idea of what North Korea is you want it to feel like a real lived in place that, that are these you know these kids home
1: but also uh, like a giant political symbol in the story as a beautiful symbol like the way i think only did with um the landscape yeah 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 but yeah you know like it's just like a brilliant take how to use those and still tell the story but so i imagine um that would be my dream director
0: <laughs> yeah that sounds great so now the really tough question uh, who, who plays you
1: yeah that's a very tough one I don't have one, I thought about this, and I don't have one. And I think that is, no one seemed right. It's very
0: hard to cast yourself. And the couple of guests I've had that have told their own story, I find it kind of weird to say, this is who you should be. But the one name that I came up with, I loved Park Sodom and Parasite. And she does the same thing in that film that you had to do in real life, where she basically creates a whole persona for her employer's benefit while hiding who she really was and what she really wanted. And she was very good in that film at kind of snapping back and forth between these different personalities of her sort of real self and the like upper class tutor that she was pretending to be. And that just struck me as very similar to this role, not just because she played a, or pretended to be a teacher in that. It's funny that shifting between different personas in a film always impresses me, even though that's what actors do and that's what mm-hmm. acting is. Mm-hmm. And yet it was still very, it was still very striking when she did that. And again, maybe it's too obvious because the—you know it's a similar role, but it's also something that we know that she can do.
1: I think that, I mean, the, there was an actress I um, loved, and I thought like that image, but she wasn't right. Um, it's actually a, the actress who was in Ang Lee's film once, Tang Wei. Remember that movie, Love Caution? Oh, of course. In, except she's not Korean. She's, I believe, Taiwanese or from Hong Kong. So, and I do think that actress should be Korean, but I really um, liked her just image, like a, her look. You know, I, I thought she could play a journalist, which is, you know, a particular look, right? I guess, yeah, I, guess yeah,
0: yeah.
1: I mean, sometimes she's dolled up, but when she's not dolled up, you know, she can kind of play anything she has kind of layers she looks like a woman with secrets basically <laughs> <laughs>
0: but that's that's exactly that's exactly what you want that's great yeah,
1: in a compelling way but and she was in this korean film with hyunbin i forget what it was called i think middle favor i think it was she was in some korean film where her look was just so what i had imagined for the i mean character although it's me it's still the character you know the character in without you there is no us Because I think woman really had to be a woman with a secret and quiet. There has to be a quiet energy there. And yet strong, right? If she's going to get through this whole thing with us. And someone who also looked like she could be fun and hang out with the students, you know? Because that's a whole other aspect to her. You know, boys have to fall in love with her. Trust her. Right, right. Right? She looked like someone you want to hang out with. (laughs) So I felt like probably the actress has to have all of that. And I do think ultimately it has to be a South Korean actress who speaks fluent English. And at this point, there's so many, you know, um, oh, exactly. I don't, yeah. really see, I don't really see, I mean, I'm probably not aware, you know, I haven't really seen Asian American. I mean, I just don't watch TV to know Asian American actresses, but I think um, there are a number of South Korean actresses who are fluent in English. I think with, with the right director, someone actually uh, was really interested in, without you, there is no us at some point, a director, and he met with me and he said, there isn't an Asian actress who can carry a movie like this. And this was a number of years ago. And I disagree. I think there actually is a whole lot, especially with the Asian market. You know, I mean, there are these South Korean actresses who are superstar in Asia. So you already have the Asian market if any of
0: them
1: would star in it. But I think with the right director, I mean, if it's somebody like Ang Lee, almost doesn't matter who is the main actress.
0: That's true. And in thinking about casting the students, I was looking at young Korean-American actors and Korean actors. And the more I thought about it, the more more I thought, you don't really want recognizable actors as the students. I think you want to cast unknowns because... I agree. You know, because... One thing you talk about in the book is how it takes so long for their personalities to emerge because there's so much pressure to be conformist, and so it takes you a while to get to know them. And I think the for the audience, you want it to be the same. You don't want to know who these kids are. You want them to kind of all be this, you know, in identical school uniforms. And over the course of the film, you get to know them the same way that you did over the course of the, of the six months. But the one the one thing about casting is, I do think it's important to not do. What a lot of movies do and cast you know twenty seven year olds as high school students um, <laughs> you know it's it feels important to the story that these like you said like they're nineteen and twenty and they feel like they're eight mm-hmm. you know you you want really actors that are the correct age but also even youthful for that age who feel like kids who are naive about the larger world and maybe curious about it as you are at that age
1: yeah I mean I think it's a really uh, i mean it would be interesting for many are becoming, right, Asian-American actors. There's so many of them or Korean actors. But also, I think where the name value for actors can happen is evangelicals, you know, because those are basically white people in the film.
0: Well, exactly, yeah.
1: (laughs) And, you know, the names that they're looking to carry the film (laughs) could happen there. For the first time, they will be playing maybe sidekick to the Asian female.
0: (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) And the
1: proper writer in the center. But there's many of them, though. I mean, this is who I was with, older white evangelicals from around the world. And I think it even
0: works the same way that casting unknowns helps the audience feel the same way you do about these characters. Maybe casting some recognizable you know, character actors, even if it's just very small roles as the evangelicals, you know, those are the Westerns you're interacting with. Those are the people who are familiar to you somewhat, even, even not being a Christian or even evangelical. And I think those are the people that are more familiar to the audience.
1: Yeah, I mean, Francis Mac Dorman can be an evangelical, one of the evangelical ladies. I mean, there are really so many of them in the story. Yeah, I think the casting them, so having actually recognizable names would not be an issue. Yeah,
0: that makes, that makes a lot of sense.
1: I think it's really a director because, I mean, it's really North Korea is a character in the story. And um, obviously, whoever would play me has to be a really good actress more than anything, I think.
0: It's so, it's so much your story that you, you, know, you really need somebody who can carry the film.
1: Right. Like someone who's very, very, very good actress has to play that role. Yeah, I mean, it would just really have to come out of South Korea.
0: But I I agree that so much of it is her and the director. The stories are, you've already written the story. The story's already there. It's just somebody who can capture all the different tones of you needed to be oppressive kind of all the time, but then also have these lighthearted moments of you bonding with the students, you know, and have you constantly be on guard against being found out by the Koreans and the evangelicals. There's a lot of emotions, a lot of tones to to juggle in this movie and make it feel like a cohesive story. And what you were talking about too of making the landscape of North Korea, you know, be a part of the story.
1: Yeah, I mean, someone it's it's basically in some sense, although it's a very, very, very individual, uh, personal story of love. At the same time, it's a huge, epic political story in a way, right? Like a director who can really bring that epic sense onto a screen it's I mean I think of it as a very big movie so I mean it's really like one of those like huge Oscar film like I think of it as like a, it has to be like a scope has to be very big which I think is why I keep going back to only he's like my one <laughs> well, number one
0: well on he, he just checks all the boxes for this and actually I keep thinking about Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon because I rewatched that recently with my kids and when I saw it when it came out you know 20 years ago like everybody else, I was caught up in the the martial arts and the special effects, and the epic sweep of that because you have all these gorgeous landscapes. It's kind of shot like a Chinese western, because there's that whole extended scene when when Zhang Zi runs away and she's in the mountains and you get all these you know beautiful landscapes, and the story has this epic feel. But watching it again years later, the thing that really struck me so much was how much it's about the characters and their emotions and their frustrations because all of them can't have what they want. Mm. You know, whether it's a romance or whether, you know, Zhang Zhi's character just wants to be wants to be free and doesn't really even know what that means, but her marriage is being arranged for her. You know, these other sort of great heroes she kind of looks up to, but they want to train her and bring her to school and kind of tame her. And she just wants to get away from everyone else's expectations and everyone else's control and just doesn't know how to do it. And I think the ending where she just flies away is because there is no real answer and there is no real way for her to have the freedom she wants. The more I think about that, the more it, it's kind of a similar tone here where to, to an even starker degree, no one has any kind of freedom and no one can make any choices and no one, you know, in, in, in that film, everyone sort of has one thing they want. They can't have, whereas, whereas no one gets to decide or want anything other than what the regime wants them to want.
1: There's such a universal human emotion of heartbreak associated with all that. Um, oh, of
0: course, yeah, yeah.
1: You know, when actually my editor who edited the book, Without You, There Is No Us, at our first meeting, after reading the draft, she told me it reminded her of her favorite novel. And um, although this is nonfiction, her favorite novel, which actually happened to be my favorite novel, Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro. Oh, which- yeah which takes place at a school um, and you slowly learn that these are actually clones, the characters, they're all going to die. And that was made into a film and not a very effective film. I think all the heartbreak got lost. You know, the, it's a book that novel that you really, it's, it's literally heart wrenching. And um, in the film version, that just wasn't there. And I remember thinking how it's, so important to get everything right, right? To bring that onto a screen. It's so possible to not be able to bring any of it. Which is oh, yeah. why it's... someone like Ang Lee can do a martial art film and yet he can bring all the characters across, you know?
0: Oh yeah, it's, a, it's such an important skill. And it's such a danger of adapting both a book and a real life story, and this is both, is just missing the point or, or misjudging what the tone has to be to get the story across.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, or even just
0: misjudging what's important about the story, because I could see someone approaching this as, oh, behind the scenes, you know, glimpse into North Korea, when that's not really the heart of the story.
1: Exactly. I'm so glad you said that. Exactly.
0: <laughs> well, I'm so glad you got to tell the story the way you wanted to in the book. And uh, now we just got to get somebody to do that in the movie.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I hope on <only laughs> <laughs> to the podcast.
0: (laughs) That's always the dream that somebody's going to listen to it and say, okay. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, that's our movie. If you have any thoughts on North Korea, undercover journalism or ideas for other movies that need to get made, hit us up on Twitter at YMovie. Uh, Thank you so much again to Suki Kim for coming on the show. You can read more of her books or more about her books on her website, SukiKim.com or follow her on Twitter at Suki's World or watch her TED Talk on YouTube where she talks more about her experiences you know, being in North Korea. One last note before we wrap up. This is the end of season two of Why This Not a Movie. We'll take a little break and be back in September. And in the meantime, you can read student journalism here at College Radio and listen to other lesser podcasts on our parent website, subjectmedia.org. Stay safe out there, get your shot, keep yourself sane, and we'll be back next time on Why, 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 why is this not a movie?